Welcome to the Mix Masters Podcast, a program created by me, Steve Litcher, live sound engineer for the band Stitched Up Heart. I created this podcast during the COVID pandemic as a means to keep in contact with my friends and mentors from the live sound industry. Touring with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet some really incredible people, and I wanted to introduce you to their stories. So whether you're an experienced engineer, a hobbyist, or someone who's just wondered what goes into mixing a live music show, this podcast is for you. I've got to thank my friend Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's an incredible musician and composer. Give him a shout on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin, or on Instagram at Doubt the Trust. Thanks again for joining me. Now let's bring up the faders and start the podcast. My guest for this episode is Drew Thornton. I'm lucky and grateful to consider Drew as a friend and colleague. I met Drew while at NAM, and we've kept in contact ever since. If you're not familiar with Drew, you're certainly familiar with who he works and tours with, Billie Eilish. Drew is an honest-to-goodness mix master. His knowledge of music, his ear for detail, and his proficiency across numerous consoles, speaker rigs, and venues is mind-blowing. Drew and I share a particular love for the Allen & Heath DLive platform, and I've spent hours picking his brain and discovering new capabilities and some of the technology that's packed into that system. Drew is as talented as he is nice. His personality comes through in everything he does, especially podcasts and broadcasts like this one. He's been a guest on a number of different shows lately, and I'd strongly recommend you check those out. He's always happy to share his innovative and intriguing approaches and ideas toward mixing. When Drew isn't mixing sound in sold-out arenas and in front of 20,000 screaming people, he makes his home in the Los Angeles area. He's also got a great social media feed, so be sure to click through to those links which are included with the show notes for this episode. Please enjoy this episode of Mix Masters, which features Drew Thornton, front of house engineer for Billie Eilish. Drew, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate to be here. Thanks for asking me. Thanks, Steve. Yep. Uh, so let's jump right. Let's jump right in because I have about a billion things that I want to talk to you about, and I realize we have a limited amount of time. Um, so for those who have not seen some of your other interviews, um, you know, where you talk about your history, would you just walk us through how you got started in the music world? What drew you into music and how you ended up uh, making your way over to New York where uh, you worked at a club for quite some time? So you wanted to keep this under an hour? <laughs> Give us the Reader's uh, Digest version. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I guess uh, the best part about it is, is I started out as a musician and I think I think a lot of people say that. It's a, it's a really good way to start. I think that you kind of you understand a musicality of something tonally and, and what sounds it, what sounds just right. You know what I mean? Like it, you can't put your finger on it, but it, it makes total sense. Um, and basically I, you know, I had a band and I wanted to get in a van and, and drive across the country and play some, you know, crappy gigs and have a good time. And, you know, I didn't really care about it. I, I only cared about music. That's all I wanted to do. And, you know, there comes a time when you're small band, uh, departs, you know, everyone goes their own ways, goes to college and, you know, and, and I kind of got in this place where I didn't, I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do, but I, I kind of, I would consider myself a, a multi-instrumentalist, I guess, 
uh, I knew enough about the drums and, and guitar and I the thought that that made me a bass player, which I know that that is incorrect. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I, you know, I, I recorded my own music, you know, I, I slowly taught myself how to record and, and I was just fascinated by it. I was I was um, I don't know. I, th- I thought it was really cool to be able to make my own music in my own room. I'd spent hours on, on end just recording myself over myself over myself. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a guy that gets paid to do this. You know what I mean? I, I don't know anything. I grew up in Kansas. I, uh, I didn't really know that there, there, you know, I didn't know what that was called. I didn't know that audio engineer was the term that, you know, that, that was being used. So I went, I, you know, I went, uh, one of those nights that you couldn't sleep and you were like, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I'm, I'm 19, 20, you know, still living with my mom, <laughs> Yeah. You know, and I'm like, I want to get out. I got to do something. And uh, I will, you know, walk down to the computer on a 56K dial up modem and uh, searched out what what this job entailed in uh, a couple schools. I called around to different studios, tried to figure out what was required to be an engineer. You know, whether you needed a diploma or did you need training? Did you need uh, a degree? Did you what, what did you need? And like I figured out all that stuff. I went to conservatory recording arts. Uh, and then I kind of thought I was going to end up in Chicago and, and, uh, my, my student counselors were more like, you should, you should hit New York, LA or Nashville, one of the, the big three. So I chose New York and I don't regret it for a moment. Um, so I, when I landed in New York, I didn't have much, uh, but I got, I got an internship at quad studios, uh, was working full time at Sam Ash across the street in Midtown. Uh, did that for about six, eight months. You know, it was pretty, pretty long weeks, about 60, 70 hour work week. And then I got a opening. Some people I knew were leaving a studio that was across the street called Legacy, Legacy Recording Studios at the time, which was a combined right track and sound on sound, two legendary studios in their own combined to uh, to make one studio. And, uh, I was lucky enough to get a general assistance position and, uh, I've never been more happy to make coffee and clean toilets in my life. Uh, it was the most incredible, uh, thing that could happen. And it's still some of the most memorable years of my life, uh, recording, you know, uh, an artist, Randall Shreve. We did his, uh, entertainer album all on the off hours, like at, two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning between my off time when I should have been sleeping. Uh, <laughs> you know, Sleep, sleep's overrated. Yeah. Yeah. I would sleep on the couch, wake up, go to do my shift. And then, uh, you know, if there was an open studio and we had a chance or if there was a cool instrument that I could get on and get him to, rec- you know, record, a, a something, I would do it. And I mean, I did that a lot. Um, luckily, <clears throat> you know, I, I kind of, Luckily and unluckily, I got laid off around the the housing crisis, um, which was kind of a tough time, but it kind of pushed me in a direction I didn't anticipate uh, of going, which was live. Um, I accidentally, you know, fell into this place called Rockwood Music Hall Mm -hmm. in the Lower East Side, and uh, I had no sound experience, and the owner only cared about sound. That's all he cared about. He had like a manly mono mic pre and a 550A rack unit and a manly Vox box all in this little tiny 80 cap room. 
it, it was fascinating. Like I couldn't believe all the gear when I was talking to him. And that's what we got into. We talked about gear and then all of a sudden he was like, would you want a job? And I'm like, I really could use a job. That would be awesome. So he brought me on and I started doing shows there and I was there for about eight years and I did over 5,000 shows mixed. I mixed and did monitors and lights for all of those shows. And as many artists in New York, I got to know as many people, um, interfaced and networked as much as I could. And, you know, in the beginning of that whole live realm, I kind of got swept into touring, you know, and, uh, one of the artists, it was funny enough. I was in a 15 passenger band van with a, a band, a great big world when they got the call from, Christina Aguilera's camp that they were like, Hey, she wants to be on the song. She wants to be a part of this. And all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of changed from there. We did huge shows and traveled the world and it definitely honed in my focus of what I wanted to do. Um, I, I was blown away. It was so intoxicating to be able to mix in a stadium and line check and and uh, drums and guitars and stuff and hear the power of a PA and it was just like ever since then I was like I'm sold. Yeah, that's uh, that's a fantastic uh, overview and you did a great job of condensing <laughs> number yeah, of years it into it. It was five. only 30 minutes later. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, I totally know what you're saying about the the great feeling of mixing a a big PA um, when I jumped into touring with Stitched Apart last year. Prior to that, I'd been mixing, you know, small little clubs and regional festivals and stuff, but nothing like the the magnitude that we were doing. And all of a sudden, you're on a D and B rig, you know, and every little adjustment you make, you hear it in the PA, and it's it's such a uh, rewarding experience. So, oh yeah, yeah, I I feel your enthusiasm completely. Yeah, it's like nothing like pushing air, you know. There's that's the thing that's most fun. It's like you think about the speakers are just pushing tons of air. Yeah, ah, so exciting physics i miss it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you you jump in you start touring with a great big world um they go from zero to a hundred when christina aguilera's camp reaches out how did you make the transition from you know mixing small theaters and and you know like 500 cap rooms or 800 cap rooms whatever going to a stadium like what what were some of the biggest adjustments you had to make to your mix to accommodate that insane change well you know it's a really good question and i think when you're in the club days you know what i mean like you you understand the basics of tuning right and then you understand like oh i know what sounds good and you know how to compensate for what what's happening in the room naturally and you know how to work around it. It's a completely different skill and it's not any easier or, or harder than what people do in an arena. It's a different skill and it's, you know, it's different. You're, you're compromising, uh, not, and not in a negative sense, but you're compromising audio in order to complement whatever's happening on stage. So, I was, I felt like I was really good at that. You know, I'd have worked with so many bands in a 200, 300 cap room and all different sorts of venues better for better or worse across the country. And I didn't feel like that transition was bad, uh, from going from like a 300 to a thousand. It was a different set of skills, but it wasn't so far, but you make that jump to like 8,000 when you're in an arena 
that's when the the truth kind of hits you. You're like, oh, there's so much power um, and so much magnitude to the information that's coming to a listener. So you have to figure out how to control dynamics and make your mix sound like a, a record. And back then, I don't think I had that mentality of like listening to my two mix and being like, oh, yeah, this sounds amazing. I think I a couple times had an accidental guy record onto a Tascam CD player and he played it back. And I was like, oh, that sounds really good. It happened uh, like uh, some venue in Ohio. I'm trying to remember. But it was a fantastic venue and it was it was awesome as an analog room. So I started from scratch. But it kind of got me thinking. I was like, wow, that's kind of an inter- interesting thing. And then when I started doing those larger shows, uh, I did start to see where some of that, you know, that old theory of working in a room is substantially different. There's a difference to working in that kind of a plane, but there's a common denominator. And I think that the common denominator came down to the point where, you know, if you make your, your left, right sound like a record, and you understand how to tune and make your speakers sound the way you want them to sound, then one plus one equals two. You're going to get a record, you know, like that's going to it's going to sound the way that you anticipate and understanding those similarities and those connections are important. I didn't feel like I understand those connections, but I do now. And I feel like even taking the approaches that I have now to a smaller room, like, for instance, when we did Austin City Limits, like I was blown away. I was like, ah, oh, it still works. Now, granted, we had a drum shield uh, in front of our drummer. We don't have any amps on stage. Uh, I don't mix incredibly loud with her. So it's a different kind of thing. So it's like it kind of does. It's funny how that could still correlate to a smaller room, like, a you know, 800 to 1,000 cap. So it was, you know, I think that that was the transition that I kind of had to make in understanding those differences from the club. And like I said before, I, I feel like there there are substantial challenges on both sides of it. You know, like it's not easy to always be able to understand. Oh well, I, if you know, I delay my my bass DI back to my bass amp, I can make it sound really tight in the room because the bass player is playing really loud. Or like having the mindset to like you know. I don't know, like, for instance, you're getting a bunch of low mids off your guitar amp and you're like, well, I'm just going to shelve my my guitar all the way up to like 400 and add it to there and see if I can get clarity back in my guitars. You know, like those kinds of creative elements of like piecing like in that small world is it's not always easy. And that's also extremely hard to do because it's also like, oh, well, if you're on one side of the room, it's going to sound different than the other side. So it's like it's an interesting place to start out. Um, but it's, it definitely, it's, it's, it's fun to think about that and having the ability to kind of draw a straight line, you know, and, and be like, okay, well this, this is what makes sense. Um, so I have a little bit better idea how I approach it than I did back then. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, no, that's, um, that's really fascinating. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute, but I want to circle back to, uh, how you got involved with Billie Eilish. So, you're working with a great big world, and I believe you had a, a friend, Andrew, um, who ended up drumming for Billy. Is that how you got the connection with Billy? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, we Andrew and I, so a great big world had been touring significantly while I was in New York. But when I moved to L.A., I did a substantial more amount of artists in a smaller amount of time because I came here without a job. And I kind of was 
pretty much fully touring all the time in New York, but I also had a full-time gig I could lean on because I worked at the venues, uh, both Rockwood Music Hall and uh, Brooklyn Bowl. So when I moved to LA, I became laser focused on, on touring and which was funny because then I got linked up to Verte, um, which was a New York based band. And I was known by her producer at the time. Uh, so they kind of know who I was because they were part of that circle as musicians and producers, not only just as producers. So I kind of got a foot in with them and we spend a lot of time touring. Like we did a pretty much a cycle together with Andrew cause he was drumming for Verte at that time. Um, and then we met up, I think the year later, the, after that last, the, the year of touring we did the next year we met up in like February and he was telling me, he's like, yeah, I got this gig with Billy Eilish. And I was like, uh, I have no idea who you're talking about, <laughs> but I was like, I, I started following her cause he's like, Oh yeah, she's blowing up. Like it's huge. And you know, he was always really good at like staying, like he had a finger on the pulse all the time. And I feel like I'm kind of in the between. I like, sometimes I can, I know what's going on, but it's very likely that sometimes you get on a tour and you're just touring and you kind of lose that touch every once in a while. So you're kind of trying to keep up with everything. So I was following it and, uh, you know, like, one thing led to another and they decided that, you know, I think two engineers later, they were like, oh, you know, we were trying someone else. And they were like, you know, what do you want to like, I, I kind of got in through, um, knowing, you know, it's it, it, knowing people helps, helps a lot. So I kind of also knew people that knew the tour manager. I also knew people that knew the, the actual manager and I, I knew Andrew. So through that, I kind of got the ability to, you know, try my hand, so to speak. They kind of put me on a trial base. So we, I did Mopop, a Mopop festival in Detroit was my first show with them. Um, and then we did a show at Chicago House of Blues was the second show. And then after that, I got the gig. <laughs> wow. Were you using your DLive console on either of those gigs, or were you using uh, what they were touring with, house house package? How did that work? Well, uh, I knew going into it, I, I did know that you know she was a really quiet singer, and I knew that it was going to be helpful to carry a desk. And at that time, I had actually had a kind of a mobile X32, but we but I was shifting towards the DLive because I I kind of knew some people in that camp and I knew Michael Bangs who's a, you know a heavy hitter on the West Coast for DLive and fantastic engineer and a fantastic yeah. human being. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know we we took it out because I I kind of knew at the last time I was in House of Blues in Chicago it was a heritage, and I thought to myself I'm like, so I'm gonna go up there I'm gonna do my first headline show and I'm not gonna have I'm not going to have the same tools. I'm not going to have the ability to do parallel compression or like busing around, you know, I'm going to have to share channels with the opener and support. Like you're going to be relying on a graph to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, and I was just like, I would rather put myself in the, the best case scenario for success. So I knew that we should be carrying something. So I put together a package quickly, uh, which was two C 1500s, two DM zeros, and, uh, at the time I think we were only using, we were actually, no, it was one DM zero and one DM 32, I think at that time. Um, and we kind of like utilized that and it was great. It worked out great for Detroit, even better, 
for the House of Blue show, which they actually updated their consoles to, I think, like a VI one. Yeah. Um, but like all all that to say, it always it's always super helpful to have uh, a desk of your own and not have to worry about sharing and, you know, having your gain staging absolutely correct from the last show, even only having one show makes a huge difference, you know, because I like to try to do as much as I can with when the client's not there like and for instance i had to do a little bit of ringing out to get the mic loud enough especially if anyone's familiar with the house of blues the pa is literally on stage it's <laughs> literally you can literally walk up as far as i remember i think it feels like it was like four or five feet right off the deck yeah like a foot from the downstage edge it's crazy yeah um, it, it definitely is it's still that way i was there in um <laughs> yeah. in december and uh had a very unfortunate mix position because their their mix um, their front of house uh, area is too small to accommodate the VI one and two boards. Even though I was on an M thirty two compact and Nick Rucker from Steel Panther was on an SD eleven, you know we didn't need a ton of room, but <laughs> I still had to stand facing the the stage left wall. <laughs> like oh no, <laughs> so it's it's exactly as you remember it. Yeah, yeah, and it's under a balcony, which sucks. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, it just messes with everything. And you're on a riser, right? You're Correct. on a riser? Yes. I can't remember. Yep. So you're literally like, they're like, well, what what could you do to make it more difficult to like understand what's happening on the floor? <laughs> Give yeah. them a riser, stick them under the balcony. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yep. I didn't mean to jump in, but I just, I, no, I no, couldn't help great. myself from chuckling when you were telling that description. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to just vouch for what you're saying. Yeah. No, no. It's, it's, it's not my favorite uh, room, I would say. But, um, you know, I, I've had good shows in there. It's, it's a little difficult when the PA is that close to the artist too, you know, when you need to push that much gain. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cool. So you, you brought the D live rigs out. Um, that was sort of where you got started with that. And then let's fast forward here. So you did, you know, from that time you did a number of shows with Billy and you became the front of house engineer and had some good success. And then all of a sudden you get the call that there's going to be this huge tour. It's going to be something like 16 trucks, you know, a number of buses, uh, two trucks for audio only, if I remember correctly, uh, from what you said. This year, yeah. 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 What goes into planning a tour like that? And what was your role in sort of designing the rig? Um, you know, did you have a lot of input into that? Were, how did you go about, um, you know, bringing that all to life? Well, so what I will say, I'll start with the fact that it wasn't at all surprising uh, that it was it was going that way. We had been kind of bouncing in and out of all different sizes all the year pre- prior to that. So, like, for instance, we were doing 800 cap venues in, like, you know, Belgium, or we would do, like, 10,000 10, cap arena with a five-person crew in New Zealand. You know, it was just all over the place. Wow. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you think about like walking into an arena and I know, I, I don't know how many people out there can imagine this. I imagine most guys can, but like think about you're the, the, you're the crew and there's only like five of you, you yeah. know, and to put this in perspective, uh, at the end of the year after Coachella, we had 45 and the beginning of this year we had 75 in our crew. So, to roll up there with a five-person crew. And I thought we crushed it. I thought it was a great show. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun energy. Um, 
But like it, it's definitely an interesting thing. But we all kind of knew it was like, oh, yeah, we kind of knew where it was going. And for me, I don't think control wise, I don't think I changed a whole lot. I changed my approaches. I think that that was the biggest thing because I kind of feel like like I, I like to say it's a lot of little things, not one big thing. So I I had the desk I love. I I love waves to a certain extent. Sometimes it can get a little bit uh, of difficult to, you know, hook up in IOs and inventory. And, and sometimes you, you know, you've got a crash here and there or whatever. So you have to be prepared for these kinds of things. But all in all, I love the flexibility of being able to load a Waves plugin and be like, oh, well, the, it sounds great. It uses no DSP or, you know, sample latency. It's, you know, pretty, pretty lean, but I'm not doing a whole lot in that. So I'm like, to me, it's like I was reworking a lot of those kinds of things. So I didn't have to really pre-plan out. I feel like this year was so easy on control because I knew exactly what I wanted to do, how I wanted to approach it. But I also, you know, I kind of wanted to rework my my process. You know what I mean? Like I wanted sure. to be like, I, I, I want to put this this process here and this process I want to move it later in the chain and these kinds of things. I think that from what I was doing last year, this plugin was working hard or harder than it should have been. And if I do this process, it will relieve some of that tension. You know what I mean? So it was like kind of reworking what I was already kind of doing. Um, and it was a platform that I, I really do love. I, I really, I really love the D life. So that makes it easy. Now, as for system design, and this is where I will claim I, I like my most ignorance, I guess you would say, because uh, it's not something that, uh, you know, I, I didn't come up in the production world. I didn't come up with a production company and uh, I've hung PA, but I wouldn't say that I've done it a thousand times. Um, and I've always worked with the artist and I've always been a freelance mix engineer. So it's a little different from that kind of spec. So I'm kind of doing a lot of learning and kind of going along with the flow. But last year, having a different PA every single day also did give me a lot of insight of how how I wanted to configure subs and how what box really complemented the way you know I was mixing. And it also gave me an inside of like horizontal dispersion and how I wanted to control, which landed me in the acoustics family. Um, so it was, I wouldn't say the design for me, it's like I knew one of the, the things that I was hell bent on. And I still feel like we still have the PA too far forward. I knew that I can, because we were going to have a 30 to 50 foot thrust. I knew that if I could push the PA downstage, at least 10 feet, a little bit farther than the average onstage position, I felt like I could get a little bit more headroom with her being on stage and a little bit more headroom on the thrust, probably like six feet farther out. Um, and I know it does stretch the 270 wrap around the back when you're trying to cover. But um, I knew those kinds of things. Uh, and I knew I wanted to get 90%, if not all my show out of the, the air, because I felt like ground subs, uh, tend to change. I think the impact kind of changes when you get people in front of them. You know, I feel like the way subs travel through people, it changes its impact and its overall response to the mix. And including that with temperature change in an arena, it can kind of really throw the balance off of a low end, low end heavy mix. So I knew that I kind of felt like I, 
you know, because I had a different PA every single day, I got a, I got a chance to kind of work with a lot of different PAs and flow and sub situations. And, and I kind of, you know, felt like, you know what, actually, I feel like a left, right configuration with the flown subs tied in as a full range system on each side really felt more consistent. Now it's very hard to break habits of how you tune a ground sub to a, you know, left, right hang when you're, you know, when you're traveling around and doing most of your work as a support, you know what I mean? Like most of my arena experience had been, you know, like I was a second to three or whatever, you know, and I, I didn't have a whole lot of time to check and I didn't have a whole lot of time to listen to the PA and I didn't get to change things with the system engineer. So, you know, left, right, sub fill was just how you, you went about it. So, you know, you would solo the sub and like, just be like, okay, I know that I don't want these frequencies in there and this would work with that. And then you try to, you know, appropriate the, that, faux crossover and try to hack together something that would complement your show. Yeah. Um, it's a much different approach now to me. I feel like I'm very lucky to have a very talented system engineer, um, Johnny Carroll. And he, you know, like I said, like he, um, on another podcast anyway, uh, I had mentioned he, he was like, well, do you want to just send me a left, right? And I was kind of thrown from it. Cause I was like, I kind of want to have more control, but to me, I'm also like, I also want like a guy to do cause he has a lot of experience as a system engineer and he's comes very highly recommended from a lot of people, especially from the acoustics camp from Dave Brooks. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to let him do his thing and I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to see how this is because I believe in the left, right mix. I don't believe that a ox sub is something that should be a part of that. Um, so my, my mix should sound good. You know what I mean? I, that's how I built my mix and that's how I, I feel like my mix should translate. So if he gets it right, it shouldn't be a problem. And it wasn't, it was great. It was, it was the least amount of EQ I've ever done to a rig. And I feel like we were just getting started too. Yeah. So I, I feel like, I feel like I have a lot to learn on the system side, but I also have a lot to learn on the mixing side. So it's kind of hard for me in a position to be, you know, rolling with an artist as this big and be like, oh, well, I'm interested in learning this st stuff, but I'm also trying to keep in mind, you know, you got to make sure that you're always bettering that mix and, and doing the best job you can. Um, and I'm lucky enough to only have to worry about mixing front of house. So, you know, right now my, my main focus and, and obsession is, you know, learning as much as I can and, and making it better every single, every single show, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, for people not familiar, Johnny, the system engineer, I think he's been out with Pink for a number of years. Um, so yep. he definitely knows this stuff, and he's with Britt Rowe, if I remember correctly. Yep, correct. Yep, um, and Britt Rowe is a uh, a partner of Claire Global. Uh, so really, talking world class organizations there. So when when you find out you're going to be doing just arenas, pretty much, you know, on this run this year, um, are you working? with the production manager to say, okay, I've got this front of house rig that I'm going to deploy. And then are they talking to, uh, Brit Rowe to design the system or, or, and what is your interaction with the system engineer, you know, during that design phase, um, uh, you know, sort of before the tour gets going, were you working with Johnny at all? Or did you, <laughs> I wish, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, here, here's also what I would say, like, um, there, 
it, it takes it takes a lot of planning to do something like this. And it's an incredibly challenging thing to th- throw together in an arena tour. Like people don't realize you, you're talking about like six to eight months of prep usually goes into tour, like prepping a tour like this. You know, you get locked down, a, you know, pretty far ahead of time. And this is kind of something that literally blew up fast. And then granted, it wasn't an incredible speed from what how she grew you know grew but then to be able to sell out every single venue that she keeps doing it was an incredible jump at an incredible rate and i think that you know when you get a certain point where something is like that and you don't have the infrastructure of a lot of these you know how do you say these legacy acts you know they have years of experience and people and and tons of people to help like you know, we're still building team, you know, we're still trying to build that team. And I feel like the production team is still kind of coming together and trying to get all the pieces that they need to do their job. So I think that in the scramble of all of that, I, I didn't have, I didn't have a complete confirmation of who I was going to be working with, but I did know that, you know, we, I had talked to my production coordinator or, you know, at the time, uh, Billy body. And we were discussing of like what PA I wanted to take out and how I wanted to approach it. And like what, you know, what, what things I knew would help me. And then I also wanted to focus for us. I wanted to focus on not necessarily just system design, but having, um, a, a system engineer that knows exactly how to deploy a system to where no resources are wasted in places that don't need to be wasted and that every single person in that arena is getting the experience that they he or she should be getting so for me it was kind of a little bit in in the dark in in that sense um i was aware of what the pa was you know being the the, the original design of the the rig and whatnot. So I knew kind of what we were going into. And I also had a lot of communication too with Dave Brooks from L acoustics. So like it was kind of a joint effort and I don't know how often that that happens because it's, this is the first time kind of carrying a PA. So it's like I was talking to Dave and Dave was talking to Britt Rowe um, and a couple of people from Britt Rowe and as well as Johnny being kind of looped in some part and parts of this design was also part of Johnny's design for pink. So it wasn't totally out of, you know, left field, but I also did want to approach the low end in a, you know, in a much different way because yeah. I knew that that was going to be a very important thing. So, and I mean, I would say too, it's like just to be completely upfront, like there was things where when we went into, to put together the rig at the last minute, I realized, oh, we're four to, well, we're doing a 45 on the cardioid subs. Um, I was like, that's crazy. I think, you know, like it was between, it looked like the subs were right between the ox hang and the main hang. And you're like, well, that but how am I going to get, cause then I was like selfish. Well, like, how am I going to get all the impact that I need at front of house? Right. But I knew it was like K one. It's like, I can have a K one rig and be fine. It's like, that's, I can get my show out of a K one rig period. We've done it in the forum. It's like fantastic. But you know, it's just one of those things where you're like, Oh, all those subs are turned that way. Why? <laughs> but it turned out to be brilliant because the way that we were able to marriage, Marriage the floor subs for the impact and the ground, like the gripping, um, but also 
keep in mind that a lot of that that zoom focus of that not the zoom the like the low end focus of like the 60 hertz of that impact was coming from the k1 and you know that coupling of the uh, cardioid sub flown between the ox hang and the main hang really helped with the coverage in like the 100 200 300 seats like i couldn't believe how much low end was you know stage right stage left you know and what you would think would be kind of the uh null point of the subs you know to me yeah. i didn't want that because i wanted i wanted the low end to be everywhere and i think it was fantastic and i i feel like we were just kind of getting you know getting it really honed in but i'm looking forward to starting it up again for sure because that, that'll be fun i can't imagine why yeah that's uh you had what something like 14 or 16 k1s on each hang Left, 14 right? 14 yeah yeah 14 k1 two k1 sbs at top and then we had four down hang at k2 and then we had eight over eight for the ox hang and we had i, I can't remember how many boxes of car we had on the 270 just all the way in the very back yeah um but um yeah no i, I i'm excited to kick it back up i feel like you know, both Johnny, it takes a little while too to kind of get a relationship and kind of understand, you know, he was trying to learn what I was doing and I was trying to learn what he was doing. And we were trying to meet, you know, somewhere in that middle part, you know, to understand how we, we do our thing. So it takes a little while and we only did three shows. Um, but he, he did, he did impress me. Like I, I, you know, you're a certain point where you're just like, I know exactly how I want it to sound. Like, I don't know whether, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take to get to a point where I will walk up to a PA and be like, oh, this sounds great. It's easy. Done. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking about the interaction there because I wanted to expand on that too. So um, I'm guessing that you guys did some rehearsal prior to, you know, hitting the first arena. Um, it sounds like you may have done that rehearsal in Lidditz at Claire Global Campus, uh, Rock, Rock Lidditz. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have any artist for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had, uh, well, we had Andrew, um, on drums, so we were able to go through that. Um, and then we, uh, basically we loaded early into, um, American Airlines arena in Miami. Uh, so we basically spent, what was it? Five days total. We had one load in day and then f four, four rehearsal days and then the show. And then, so we were in the space that we needed to be. And we were able to practice, you know, the load in and then do the show and then load out and then do the next show the next day in Orlando. Um, so that was helpful. And when you're doing those rehearsals, are you how are you interacting with a guy like Johnny? Are you guys walking the room together and, you know, sharing notes back and forth? Or what is what is that relationship like? Uh, I would say it's it, it, it's I try to like observe because for me it's like i this is a place where i haven't been so i i don't it's not like i'm going to go and hang out and catering and then sleep in the bus or do whatever and then just come back and expect everything to be right no i i, I personally want to learn as much as i can and retain as much but also want to be as prepared as possible for him as well because i don't i i will i didn't want to hang up the process and i wanted to make sure that we get it right um, so I tried to stay out of his way in, in him being able to prep the system and do what we needed to do because we did spend a lot of time in Lidditz, but in the box, it's, it was really hard to have 14 boxes of K1 
four boxes of K2 and two K1SBs all firing into a wall. Right. You know what I mean? Behind you and then try to make it sound a certain way. I fought tooth and nail to keep from fixing my mix, quote unquote, fixing my mix for the room because that room is just not a place where you want to get a mix together. Unless I think you could, if you split the PA in half and wanted to do something like that, where you're not firing boxes directly into the walls could be different, but we didn't do that. We set up the entire rig. We had to, you know what I mean? We had to, test and make sure everything landed where it needs to be and was capable of doing what needs to be done. And then also, you know, in prep, you're, you're spending a lot of time building the cable looms for the entire rig itself. So there's a lot of prep that goes in and you can't just like, you know, tear it apart and just like make it cause it's, that wasn't the goal. Right. So I had, I had two rigs and I had one rig in my B rig was in, uh, a side studio in the dance studio. So I kind of saddled up there and I tried to do most of my mixing, uh, there. And then I would go out there to do some of the rehearsal walkthroughs and like, you know, as much prep as we could do. And then when we landed in American airlines, uh, arena, that was when we kind of, you know, started doing that. And that's when we like, once Johnny got to a point where he was like, I think this is what you wanted because he also did. I brought, I brought him in, into the dance studio when we were in Lidditz. So I was like, this is what I want. This is how I, I want my low end to impact. And this is how I want it to sound. And he'd be like, Oh, okay. Okay, cool. So he had like a reference of what my mix sounded like from, you know, studio monitors, like some gentle X and stuff. And then when we got into the arena, he would do his thing. And then when he, he would call me whenever he's ready, but I was pretty much just sitting there waiting. Cause I was just kind of watching, listening. He was playing some reference tracks and then, I would literally go through and I, the first listen, of course, it's always like, okay, this sounds different. Like, or I want to do this, or this is something that sounds weird before you go in and hack everything. Like for me, it was like the low mids were a little bit clunky. You know what I mean? Like the way the K one was hitting me. Um, so we were kind of did some work to that and adjusted some things and we'll get to the point where the PA felt good. And this is just the left, right? Like I don't, I, I, if I start and that's what I got in a habit of last year, just starting with the left, right, uh, not, not adding subs or ox hangs or 270 hangs or anything else. Like it was all about that. Like I just wanted to get the truth from there. And then the idea is you're supposed to be able to add those other peripheral speakers into the mix without too much change. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't hear them too directly. Um, so like we would go after that, I'd get the PA where we wanted it, and then we would take a walk. You know, I'd loop the virtual sound check and I'd listen and we'd walk up there and he'd have his tablet, which was doing a remote desktop access of the uh, LA network software. And we would go in and I'd be like, oh, you know, the, this this hang feels a little aggressive right here. It doesn't feel like it's it's very, it feels a little scooped, you know, like a little too harsh where this part is a little too bright, you know, these kinds of things. And we also work on the front fills because at this point he had brought everything into his network. Uh, and we were trying to aim for consistency. And once we did, it was fine. But, uh, we did spend some time walking the room and, and he was fantastic about that. Literally like measuring from a lot of different places and walking the room and listening and changing things and, 
you know, making sure that, cause I, I don't want to stop him from doing his job job and I don't want him to stop me doing my job, you know? So I think it was, you know, it was, it was a pretty quick and seamless way of getting in, uh, I don't know, sync, I guess I, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's, it's the most important job I, I would, I would venture to say, cause it's like, you know, I don't have control over that, but whose fault is it if you can't hear someone's vocal up in the cheap seats? We saw how that goes down, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, it's always the sound guy. It's not like someone's not some little girl is going to be like, oh, that system engineer did a terrible job. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I want to put a lot of trust in that guy and I want, I want Johnny to do his job and, and it's, you know, that's the most important thing, you know, like he's, he's really good at what he does for a reason. So like, I'm going to let him do his thing, you know? Yeah. I'd love to get him on the, the podcast because system engineering is something that I have so much respect for. And I know just enough to be dangerous at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an art form and yeah. it truly is like I, all through last year, not having a PA and understanding like, you know, you gotta, that's a, it's a very important thing. Like you, that, that person is there to like, make sure that, you know, those things are doing what it's supposed to do and everyone else is getting the same picture. And it, you know, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And especially for this kind of a show, like I, I'm literally writing Billy's vocal the whole show. Like I can't, I don't, I don't ever feel like I could just walk away, you know, and be like, oh, we're, we're good. I'm going to just check the floor. <laughs> you know, like, no, I'm not going to, um, you know, cause at any moment she could like run off into like, you know, the catwalk that goes in front of the PA or run down the, you know, the, the catwalk that is the downstage catwalk or onto this, that the first catwalk that I mentioned that literally raises up into front of, uh, the PA and whatnot. So it's like, you know, you, to me, it's like, it's, you have to, you have to be mindful of that, you yeah, know? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important. Well, and I think you, you sort of, reinforce the point and i know you're a big proponent of you know getting your left right mix to sound exactly like the record and then you know using that as a reference i know you record everything and you evaluate it you know in your downtime so i think having the 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 experience and the approach that you do which is getting your left right to be exactly what you want it to be so that when you're in a room like the box over at at claire global in Lidditz, you're not adjusting your mix because you realize your mix is fine it's just the the room isn't cooperating and then you can make adjustments from there so i think that's a really smart thing i mean it's really hard to do i mean i think the biggest sacrifice was the impact of the low end and was just like i was like so like oh man i want to fix this i want to fix this and like johnny was like you can't there's nothing you can do in this place it's just how it is you know and i'm like ah man like this is just you know like i just feel like i need to you know i want to make it sound good you know like so you're just kind of just sticking to doing your damage in the lake and trying to keep your, and it's not easy to not, <laughs> so I think sound guys are, it's hard not to touch stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, if you really like it, you know what I mean? If you love what you do, you're a tweaker. You just tweak, you keep tweaking the whole show. I don't stop tweaking. I don't stop playing, uh, you know, watching even, you know, all the, the tutorials and the videos and the podcasts and everything else of all these other guys that are mixing like, 
they, they talk about the same thing. They are always constantly moving and doing stuff and like hearing things and changing things. And it's writing that fine line of tweaking slash listening. Yeah. That's the toughest part. And I'm still learning how to do that. <laughs> but, but, oh God, yeah. I'm in trouble if you're still learning, Lynn. I'm, uh, uh, no, I'm doomed. Well, but just to stop and like take it in and be like big picture. Cause yeah. you could be focused on something laser focused and things could be whizzing by you and just, you don't even notice. So Absolutely. it's very important to be able to like, Listen as a crowd, like a crowd, crowd member. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm, that's what I mean by like listening. Like that's, that's the hardest part is like, all right, you take the magnifying glass away and then you listen to the entire big picture. That's a, um, it's like you're reading my mind. I'm, I'm looking at my little <laughs> cheat sheet here. Yeah. And the next thing I wanted to talk about was your mix approach, um, to a show and specifically, what are you listening to and focusing on during the show? I, I realize you're looking at a lot of things and listening to a lot of things, but how would you describe your focus and what you're really paying attention to? Obviously, the vocals, but within the vocals, what are you really looking for when you're mixing? Yeah, I mean, well, you said it yourself, vocals. I mean, for me, uh, you know, I I feel like always constantly being able to hear uh, Billy is the most important thing. I mean, uh, that's, that's one of the most important things that I've was taught at a very early part of my career. It's like, you could have a slamming mix and if someone can't hear the singer, he, you're the, everything sucks. Like the right. show sucks. You can't like your mix is garbage, you know, to the, the, to the lay person, you know, like it's like you doesn't, it doesn't matter if you can't understand what they're singing and and you can't un like hear the singer, it doesn't matter. Nothing, uh, nothing matters. So vocal is the most important thing. And, and given the amount of gain and the, you know, the, 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 the way the show goes for me, it's like, I have that, that DC, uh, the, the group right there on my baseline, like just literally always riding it up and down based on what's going on. Um, so that, that's definitely one, definitely one thing that I'm, constantly paying attention to um for sure uh, and also trying to pay attention to my overall volume i feel like uh making sure i understand how loud i am and where i can go and you know how how to pay attention to that and your impact of your low end for me it's a very important part of the show it's, it's like that's what billy billy wants a hip-hop show she wants that hip-hop low end she wants that tons of low end it's like and it's an interesting thing to be mixing at a lower than normal, what I would consider a normal volume, but it, you know, you're constantly trying to drive the average of your show up by treating different inputs differently. So I feel like I'm paying attention a lot to the vocal, to the low end. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm trying to make sure that everything tonally makes sense, you know, cause like you can, you having a reference understanding what your mix sounds like you know is is an important thing to keep the high mids all in check like you want to have everything have that that hard frequency range to get right sometimes on a loud pa you know like you're talking from 1 to 4k you know pummeling a speaker at people super loud and it's not always easy and it's sometimes it's the hardest range for some younger engineers to get right you know that range and like the range from 100 to like 
400. It's like that low mids, like that's where all your power comes from. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of that tonal balance, volume, vocal and low end impact. Yeah. Cool. Um, so it is interesting because I, I know that you mix, you try to mix what 97, 98 DB, uh, a weight in general, but then you're in an arena full of, you know, 20,000 screaming teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't win in that situation. (laughs) I was going to ask, that was my question is, you know, how do you find room in your mix for the frequencies, you know, with, with fighting the crowd and still making it intelligible or, do you just sort of have to throw up your hands every once in a while and go, well, the crowd is, you know, louder than the PA right now? I won't lie. I do. I do help the crowd a little bit. I think I get a lot of bleed in the vocal from the crowd uh, from time to time. That's another thing that I'm writing down. So when she's like putting the mic out and she oh, wants yeah. people to sing along, I'm like dipping that because it, it, they're so loud. They're already loud without being amplified. And if I was to just leave my DCA at zero, you know, like it would be so painfully loud. Um, so I feel like I don't try to compete and I wish I could, I I wish I, I could claim that it's a purposeful thing, but I feel like at this point, um, it's the loudest I can be with her. You know what I mean? Especially with her. I think I could be louder with her on stage. For sure. But now I have things that I didn't have last year that I had this year, like a B stage behind front of house that is eight feet tall. And then I also have this catwalk that I had mentioned earlier. Right. It's automated catwalk that can go up and down and literally it's at the end of this thrust, 30 foot thrust out into the crowd. And at the end of the thrust is this catwalk and this catwalk literally goes as high as the PA. I mean, she can literally stand. It's, it's 70 feet wide. So it's perfectly the width of my PA, <laughs> right? My main PA coverage. And, and it's, and she can walk back and forth, you know, and it goes as high as the PA. So probably like 40 feet, 30, 40 feet. And, and it depends on what this show is doing. So it's, it, it's a challenge if you if you try to drive home a really loud loud mix with a quiet quiet singer and a you know a very cranked vocal mic, you're gonna have to compensate on that end for the PA because I mean there's there's tons of tools out there but there's not a silver bullet for making that you know making your mix disappear disappear from the vocal you know yeah. vocal mic, um, so like my approach was is like I want to find a uniform place I can live. So I don't, I don't constantly have these jolts and volume when she moves from place to place. And that was the perfect place that I wanted to be in. And luckily this year, I think a lot of the things that I changed made a huge difference in, uh, in her, how do you say her stability? Like, I guess of like, you know, her volume and then also feedback before gain or gain before feedback. (laughs) <laughs> feedback before gain. Um, and then like I, like I said, I, I wanted to try to make sure that the, the, the volume swings weren't like what I was doing last year. Cause a lot of the time when she was out on the thrust, we had like 50 foot thrusts at the time and she would do a quiet song out there. And I, I was like, I can't, I can't make this any louder and I can't ring it out to her, you know, and if you can't do anything to make the feedback stop, the only thing you can do is to turn down. 
You right. know what I mean? Like there's nothing else you can do. So like I got to the point where I was like turning down and putting a page in the lake to cut out like little tiny, super narrow frequencies to get bassed. And I, I see it as like, yeah, you could insert one over a vocal, but now you're cutting all the top end and the mix is changing. Now for me doing it over the left, right, it's a terrible idea. And it's only a thing to do when you're, you don't have the same PA every day. There's better, much better ways of dealing with it. Um, but for me, I was like, I could do a little couple surgical cuts, throw it in when she's on the thing and bring down the mix to 95 and, you know, survive it. And I was like, that was so tough. Like that 2 dB in an arena is a lot. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. But, uh, I feel like a lot of the changes and, and I mean, Johnny, you know, being able to maximize the, the system the way he did, um, helped a lot. Um, it, you know, having a, a PA doing what it's supposed to do is in incredibly important. I also feel like I've, I've made leaps and bounds over my show from last year to this year. So it's like I said, it's a lot of little, a lot of little pieces. And, yeah. you know, like I said, when, when I can run my entire show at 97, wherever she is, that's, that's good. That, that to me feels more normal and no more natural. Cause you don't want to go to a show and be like, Oh, all of a sudden it got really quiet. Why did it get all quiet? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's uh, that's an obvious thing. People, people, you don't have to be an engineer to notice that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I know you've gone on at length in other, uh, podcasts and whatnot about your, your vocal chain and all of the inserts and, and things that you're doing. So I won't go down that path, but I'll just ask hopefully a, a pretty simple question. What are you using for Billy these days for a vocal mic and capsule? Um, I'm still, uh, working with the V seven. The V seven has, I haven't shot anything out since, uh, the last shootout, but we've, we've shot out about eight capsules so far. We had a couple other capsules to try and we didn't get around to it. We had a lot on our plate and a little amount of time. So, we didn't get to get around to trying those capsules, which I can't really talk about <laughs> technically. Um, but yeah, we're still working with the V seven and I still love that mic. I think it's a fantastic mic. It's a fantastic company. Uh, we added, uh, the V, the V beats to all the toms. And I actually added the V kick to the floor two this year. Oh. Um, so that, that was fun to add this year. Um, but other than that, yeah, we're still rocking the V7. Yeah, that's a great capsule. I stumbled on that a couple, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, and it's it's really wonderful. Um, for those who may not be familiar, I'm sure most everybody is, but it's made by SE Electrics, and it's the V7, I think, MC1 for a Sure uh, wireless body. Yeah, the MC1's a Sure, and the MC2, which just came out, works for the Sennheiser bodies. Which, uh, you're using Sure bodies or Sennheiser? We're, we're on Axiants, so we're sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, gosh. Yeah, I could sing the praises of Axiant for uh, yeah. a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, the last thing I want to talk a little bit about here, because we're coming up on an hour, um, and I really, I could talk to you for a, another week <laughs> after Axiant, so thanks. Um, sure. But uh, so talk to us a little bit about how you lay out your, your console, um, I know you're a big believer in groups and you create different matrix matrices or matrices, uh, you know, for like broadcast feed and delay, but can you just sort of give us a, a five cent tour of your console and how you're setting everything up and laying it out? 
Um, I think you're on an S5000 from Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. just, you know, take us through some the uh, the hierarchy of your your console and then we'll call it a day. So, uh this year, uh I changed up quite a bit from what I was doing last year. This year I've been utilizing groups a lot more. So, every input in my desk hits a group before it hits the left right. Um so that's the most important thing to note. And also another thing that's a little different that uh, most guys don't do, I don't think, or at least I, I don't, I haven't heard much about it. It's like I run my iPod directly to my matrixes um, in order to bypass any of my left, right flavoring, so to speak. Um, I could do it through the left, right, but I feel like I, I kind of got to a point where I'm like, I kind of like doing it this way um, because this way I could actually mute the left, right and unmute my iPod, and while I'm mixing in virtual soundcheck offline, I can AB the the sonic signatures so much quicker. You know, I mean, there's a thousand ways you could do it, and there's probably better. There's better ways to do it, but I just kind of been doing that for a little while. Um, so everything, all the inputs hit groups, and they're hitting two sets of groups this year. Uh, for me, I'm doing parallel compression groups for every single thing. I know it sounds excessive, but like I had mentioned, I was, you know, there's, there's only so many things that you could do with uh, a quiet vocalist. Um, but there are things that you could do to reapproach other inputs. So this year, and I, I did have a lot of success. I mean, I've always been a fan of parallel compression for drums. Um, will always be a, a fan of it. And I mean, I've been doing that for the last couple of years, more, more than the last couple of years, probably like five years. Um, and you know, it depends on what kind of format you're on. Sometimes it's a little easier. So this year I was like, well, instead of just doing vocal parallel compression for vocals, which I was doing with the parallel path, uh, in within the compressor of the group. So I don't, I only have one vocal group for whatever she's doing. So I have four groups together. Um, I have like a main vocal and a spare feeds a group. I have a vocoder that we aren't utilizing yet that feeds a group. I have an, a Billy effects vocal mic that also feeds a group and that's a stereo. So it is a stereo group feeding us or a stereo input feeding a stereo group. And then, uh, let's see here. Then there's another one. Oh, there's a B stage, a mono B stage vocal. Cause I set that up a little differently than I do the main vocal. And that also feeds a group. Um, and note that as a mono as well. And then those groups are sending off to my effects for my vocals. Cause at that, that the group is like almost the near end part of my chain, uh, for processing for Billy. So that way I can get the fully processed vocal hitting my effects, which gives me a little bit more resolution, I think, in what I'm hearing from the effects return. Like you get more information, I think, hitting that. Um, so as for all of my, like, for instance, my drum return, my drum effects, like they return to my drum dry, which is all my drums. And then my drum parallel, which is the shells it also feeds the drum shell channel. So then the reverb is get, getting kind of squashed in that parallel compressor compressor and also in the dry channel. So it's kind of the similar situation. Then I have tracks. I have a tracks and a tracks parallel compressed version. And I'm using the Dyn 8 on both those channels 
uh, both those groups. So I'm kind of doing not only parallel compression, but I'm doing like a, it can vary from three to one to six to one ratio, multi-band parallel compression. So like the tracks dry is dry. There's no processing. But then on the tracks parallel compressed, there is some more faster attack, faster release kind of uh, multi-band activity happening on those. And that's kind of the, the theory that I have along with those uh, other groups. So then that leads me to the instruments and the instrument parallel groups, which is the same thing as the tracks, uh, dynates. Then I have a background vocal and a background vocal parallel compression. And keep in mind, like I had mentioned, all those, uh, all those instruments contributing to those groups any effects on them, those effects returns are being sent into those groups, both the parallel and the uh, dry bus. And then, you know, then you get to Billy's vocal. And then now these, all these groups get sent to my left, right. Now, I kind of want to try to figure out with the, the architecture of the DLive, how best I would want to do this. Eventually, I'd love to get to a point where I have a band bus and a vocal bus, and then that feeds a main bus. Um, but I haven't gotten quite to that point yet. Um, and I'm not feeling like I'm lacking a whole lot, but there is probably some things I can gain from that. Um, so also that, so these groups not only feed my left, right, they feed four stereo matrixes, which are dedicated for stems. Um, and at this point, if you've been keeping track, I'm utilizing a lot of buses for this. So, I couldn't I couldn't break them out anymore, but I don't think I would really want to. My my app would be less is more because I feel like there's less room for error. But I did break out the show into stems for a situation where I'm like, you know, there there's more of a particular kind of broadcast and they want to be able to like bring it up. So like I, I basically set it up to where it's all a post fade or send of all the entire show, but one matrix is designated for drums one's designated for uh music and then the third one is designated for the lead vocal and the fourth is the effects returns of the vocal so that way there's literally you could break the mix down into drums music and then the vocal independent of the effects wow. uh and then as for speaker outputs uh, I, I don't do any kind of auxiliary sub. Uh, it's all matrixed off my left, right. So my matrix or my, my left, right mix feeds, uh, eight matrix, eight matrix, eight matrices, uh, that are a left mono, right mono, sub mono, front fill mono. Then I have two monos paired for like a near fields or delays and then two other mono sends that could be set up for whatever. Um, and then I also have, in addition to that, I feel like I have a dedicated USB or a stereo uh, matrix for recording, which I use for my USB recorder. So it's just my, my um, it's just a send to my USB recorder, but it's also like a good way to, for me to send a a left right mix to somebody sure and then uh, i have a a mono summed version of that as well so just in case someone only wants like oh can you just send me a mono sum for reference i have a mono uh, uh matrix just for that for recording 
I uh, I definitely lost count along the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm using I'm I'm pretty sure my bus count. I think I'm only I only have like two or three auxiliaries left at this point. And that's crazy because um, you can have sixty four. Uh, in the deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's pretty crazy. And there are, you know, there, I could have definitely utilized the parallel path more in some of the parallel compression that I was doing for things like the tracks and whatnot. But I wanted to kind of try my hand at the, the Dynates. And I am also burning some resources by using the Dynates as ways to keep my buses all aligned time-wise. So, um, like I said, I'd mentioned you before this, I was going to try to map out sample latency on, on the dynates and, and some of the external effects that aren't, uh, within that spectrum of, uh, how do you say aligned audio out right. of the, the desk. So like eventually when I get to that point, then I I'll switch, which this is good to note. You could switch the delay to sample uh, accuracy instead of milliseconds. So that way you can literally delay to the sample, which will be completely aligned in theory. So I'm going to do some tests and stuff and I want to do that, but, um, yeah. And that way I won't have to burn like a dyne eight, just, you know, <laughs> you know, just, uh, arbitrarily. Right. So, yeah, it's, that'll be fascinating. Drew and I were, Drew and I have talked, um, a bunch of times before and, and we're, we were talking before the podcast and it's going to be really exciting to see what you come out with that, uh, as a result of your, your measurements, I'm really, truly excited about it. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Cool. Well, uh, Drew, we're, we're just over an hour and I feel like we only began to scratch the surface, but uh, maybe we'll, we'll do a follow-up discussion on really deep dive things and, uh, you know, introduce people to more of your thought process because it is really fascinating and your mixes just absolutely hammer. Um, so yeah, uh, really mean that like they're they're fantastic so um is there any place online where you where you might steer people to if they want to check out what you're doing or follow along with some of your adventures once once we get out of this um imposed vacation (laughs) yeah totally i mean my instagram is drew m as in michael thornton t-h-o-r-n-t-o-n um follow me on instagram that's pretty good uh i also my name on Facebook, I tend to troll all the, you know, the fun <laughs> groups on there as well. Uh, I love to try to keep, you know, keep up to date and post as many different things like, you know, what I'm doing and anything that I've been lucky enough to be a part of, such as this podcast. Uh, I'll be posting that up on my socials as well. Um, you know, my website, 11 Um, but other than that, you know, I'm, you know, try to keep it pretty simple. Cool. And I will put up links uh, for all of this in the show notes. So by the time people are hearing this podcast, they'll have access to all of your links as well. So um, check them out. Drew is just an amazing person, uh, really <laughs> helpful and so generous with his time. Um, I'm, Thanks, man. I've listened to you on a bunch of podcasts uh, while we've been enjoying this downtime. And I learn something every time I hear you talk. I learn something every time I get to talk to you as well. So uh, thank you for being so generous and sharing uh, what you know with all of us. It's, it's greatly appreciated. Dude. Well, thanks for having me on seriously, dude. Yep. All right. Well, we'll let you go. Um, until we talk again, don't let anybody cough or sneeze on you. Uh, stay okay. healthy. <laughs> all that fun <laughs> you stuff. Too, you too. All right, cool. Drew it was great to speak with you and uh, take care. Pleasure, man. 
And that's a wrap on today's show. I hope that you found it equal parts entertaining and informative. This show is recorded on an Allen & Heath D-Live system with Sure microphones and Waves tracks live. I use Skype, FaceTime, and Facebook Messenger to meet with my guests, so the occasional robot voice is to be expected. Thanks again to Merrick Goodwin for the awesome show music and to you for listening. Be sure to visit the Mixmasters website at www.mixmasterspodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Mixmasters can also be found on Facebook and Instagram at Mixmasters Podcast. That's all one word. Give a like, follow us, and never miss out on new episodes. 